Okay. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Revelation, and I'm not going to tell you what chapters. We're going to see uh, how well you remember where we left off. It's been four months. Anybody remember the chapter we uh, finished in last time? I already told Gary, that's, that's no fair. Chapter 20. All right. What was the last verse we studied? Now, if you're an astute Bible student, you mark up your Bible. That's why I recommend you get a wide margin Bible. Bibles are made to be written with, you know that? It's a good incentive for personal Bible study, by the way. If you get yourself a nice wide margin Bible and you sit down with the Word of God, that way when God gives you an insight, you're right there with your pen and the paper to write it on and you just put it in there right next to the verse. You don't have to rewrite the verse, you see, because it's already right there. Isn't that good? Little little uh, recommendation there. So if you've been doing that, maybe your notes stop at that verse. Anybody have an idea where we left off? Who said that? Very good. Verse six. Uh, so we're going to uh, read just uh, four verses here this morning. And then we're going to uh, do what we did a couple of times as we've gone to the book of Re- Revelation. We're going to use Bill McDonald's uh, $10 word. We're going to have an excursus this morning. Anybody have Bill's commentary at home? See that word excursus? Very crudely put, it means you take a little bunny path on a side trip on a subject that came up in the course of your study. Okay, verse 7 of uh, Revelation chapter 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, the subject of our study is not going to be verse 10, but I'll talk about that one first. I have in my Bible, is one of my little notes beside that verse, the end, number one. Really, when we read that verse, we had to re- breathe a sigh of relief, a great sigh of relief. This is the end of the career of Satan. Isn't that good? Praise God, what a day that will be. He will be finished. But we're, we're going to reserve that for later when we talk about the Great White Throne, which won't be next week, uh, Lord willing. Next week we'll take up the subject of the Millennium. It's funny how many people say the Millennium is uh, not really a thousand years when the the expression occurs here four times, a thousand years. It's a literal thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus. But that'll be next time. Now, just to set the context, uh, there's no way I'm going to review the whole book of Revelation for anyone this morning. But just as a reminder, we started off uh, looking, well, of course, at the historical part, which was the letters, remember, to the seven churches. Then we looked at the uh, seven what? Seals. Then the seven what? Trumpets. Now you're getting there. Okay, well, process of elimination. What's next? Seven what? Bowls or vials. That's right. Uh, then, of course, the big, big cataclysmic event that takes place right at the end of that, Armageddon, which we talked about. We're going to talk about in more detail this morning. 
And then the millennium, which we really uh, skimmed over. I did read a few verses at the end of one of my messages out of the Old Testament, but it really didn't do it justice. Uh, in prophetic scripture in the Old Testament, probably, I don't know, maybe half of it is devoted to the millennium. There is so much to describe the literal reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. And so we have to pause next week and examine that more closely. Uh, then, amazingly, it, when, when you think about it, at first it really seems strange that the millennium where the Lord Jesus is physically ruling on the earth, that it ends with this great battle. How can that happen? How can you find enough people to be, like it says, the sand of the sea to come and attack Jerusalem? It's amazing, isn't it? Yes? No? You asleep this morning? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. We're going to talk about that one second. But what I want to talk about this morning, as I said, we've had excursies in the past where a subject has come up. For example, you remember when we talked about the resurrection? Remember that? Yeah? Some of you are here. Okay, good. And uh, as I said, we, we took a little bit of an excursus on the millennium, but it was very small. And, of course, as we've gone through the tribulation, many times we've gone back to passages. That's the other major portion of Old Testament prophecies is the tribulation, of course. And we've looked at those as we've gone along through the uh, seals, trumpets, and bowls. But I'd like to look at these two battles that are in the end times. The first one we, we just mentioned, is, it's interesting, people call it Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon. Of course, they call it that because it says it in the Bible. Let's turn back to chapter 16. Because there's, there's something you're going to learn about that, that may surprise you. The name Armageddon uh, is found here in chapter 16. It's actually the uh, sixth bowl next to the last plague. Remember it went seals, trumpets, bowls, and there were seven of each. This is the sixth bowl. So it's the next to the last plague. It's right at the end of the Great Tribulation. Verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out, this is Revelation 16, his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. The word literally means hill of Megiddo. Now, I, I had a map that I should, probably should have brought this morning, but if you can look in your uh, Bible atlases if you want. But it's in the northern part of Israel, Megiddo. And uh, actually, there's a big uh, valley, a flat area, a low, lowland area that runs pretty much from the coast all the way to uh, the Jordan River. It's actually called the Valley of Jezreel. And Megiddo is just uh, one of the towns that's on the edge of that valley. The left side of the valley comes out, I think, at modern Haifa. It might be Akko or Acre on your Bible. You see the horn sort of uh, on the northern part of Israel on the coast? Yes, the little thing sticking up. I see some. That's where it starts. It goes southwest uh, toward the Jordan. If you see Mount Tabor or Mount Gilboa, they're on the right side of the valley. See those? Either one of them? Yes, no? Okay. 
Um, and so we read this, and it sounds like, okay, well, there's like this one final battle, but it's really not the case, as we're going to see when we look at the Old Testament prophecies. It's actually a series of battles. And if we were good students of Greek, which I'm not, but I have some good helps at home, we would see that the word that's translated battle here really is a campaign. The word means a campaign. Okay? You following me? Okay, so really the, the last battle is really a series of battles that are going to take place. We shouldn't be surprised because of all the chaos that's going on on the earth. And um, it's interesting that the Antichrist will not rule unopposed. They will be various uh, revolutions that try to take their shot at him right at the end of the Great Tribulation. What I'd like to do now is, since we're, the subject has come up, let's look at some of the Old Testament passages and see more detail about these battles that are comprised what might be called the campaign of Armageddon. And it's not all on the plain of Armageddon, by the way. Uh, we see places mentioned all the way from Edom, very south, below Israel, to Jerusalem, a little farther north. And uh, in Joel, there, there's a mention of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is probably an area that's east of Jerusalem, all the way up to Megiddo, which is up toward northern Israel. So the uh, war will cover pretty much the whole land in the very last part of the tribulation. And, and armies will come from all over the world there. Primary purpose will be, to, of course, to uh, attack Jerusalem, although that's not the only purpose. Now, before we do that, because when we look at them, it's not going to be clear exactly how they fit together. It's not going to be exactly clear what some of the passages mean, in fact. And in fact, in one case, it's not going to be clear which of the two battles here at the end of Revelation is talking about, whether it's the battle at the end of the tribulation or the battle at the end of the millennium. But don't let that trouble you. Okay? That's because we're before the thing right now, right? And just to remind you, look at Psalm 22 real quick. And just let's remind ourselves about prophetic scripture. And when it's written and before the event, we have to confess it's not clear. You cannot make heads or tails quite often of what the passage is saying until after the event. And then you look back and you say, oh, it's a perfect fit. Every detail is exquisitely fulfilled in the Word of God. So, Psalm 22. Now, here's a psalm written by David This uh, about a thousand years before Christ. And if you're a believer, you know what we're going to look at here. This is like a description of a crucifixion, isn't it? Written a thousand years before Christ with phrases in it that when you're, if, if you're to read them ahead of time, you say, what is that talking about? But now when we look back at the cross, it's so clear what they mean to us. We take it for granted today. Uh, it begins with the, the Lord's cry on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that this applies to the cross right away because of that. That's what the Lord cried on the cross. And yet, no doubt, David was going through a time in his life when this psalm, he felt it in his own life. Remember, it was written from his own personal experience. But God got hold of David, as he did in, in the other psalms, and said, David, you don't know, but we're going to write a deeper message here. And he ends up writing a description of the Lord Jesus dying for our sins. Uh, look at verse uh, 6, 7, and 8. But I am a worm and no man. The Lord Jesus in his uh, abasement. A reproach of men and despise of the people. We're talking about the mocking around the cross. All those who see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Wow. 
That's exactly what they said. Written a thousand years before they said it. Uh, <clears throat> verse 12, many, here's the idea then of him being surrounded. as He's up on the cross, surrounded by his enemies, mocking him. First, uh, they were mentioned here in verses 6, 7, and 8. In 12, they're compared to bulls. Later, they'll be compared to a pack of dogs. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouth as a raging and roaring lion. 14 and 15, the physical aspects of crucifixion. I'm poured out like water. Uh, all the body fluids drain. You sweat profusely during cru crucifixion. And it's an agonizing death as you, the thirst is incredibly uh, torturous. All my bones are out of joint. That happens in crucifixion. My heart is like wax, lack of strength. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Again, the thirst. You have brought me the dust of death. Again, the surrounding witnesses, for dogs have surrounded me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. Listen to this. What does this have to do with David? They pierced my hands and my feet. You'd read that and you'd say, what? You know, before the crucifixion, you'd read to the psalm and say, huh? I can count all my bones? What is he talking about here? It's a crucifixion. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. What? What? Why did they take David's garments and divide them? You see, you read this and you say, what is all this stuff? We look back. Every one of these was fulfilled perfectly in the crucifixion. Isn't the word of God wonderful? It's incredible. You can show this to a person on the street and say, did you know God wrote this a thousand years before the cross? It might make them think. Say, read this. What's he talking about? A person on the street would know. And then tell them God wrote it a thousand years before Jesus. So, let me, let me remind you now, before we look at these passages, we're going to look and we're going to say, hmm, what? It's not clear. Right. It hasn't happened yet. But after the event, we won't be here to witness it, we, the ones who know the Lord Jesus Christ, but after the event has happened, it'll be clear what they all mean. We're only going to look at three passages. There are many passages talking about the battles in the end time. Uh, the, probably the, the biggest one is in Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel, just before Daniel. Mm. Ezekiel 38, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, Set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks into your jaws, and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, now it says in mine, Ethiopia and Libya, Actually, it's Cush and Put. Does anybody have that in, the, in your Bible? Yes? No? Everybody has Ethiopia and Libya? In the, margin. in the margin, okay. Are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his troops, the house of Togarma from the far north and all his troops, many people are with you. Prepare yourself and be ready, you and all your comp companies that are gathered about you, and be a guard for them. <clears throat> After many days you will be visited. And here's the key verse that lets us know that this is in the end times. In the latter years, 
you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So there, verse 8 gives us the timing, the setting. You got that? In the latter years, it says. And then, of course, it talks about the restoration of the nation of Israel to their land, which has happened now in our time. Okay? Now, before we go any further, let me just ask a question. Which of the two battles we saw back in Revelation do you think this is talking about? The first of this is the, the Battle of Armageddon, which was in uh, chapter 16 and later in chapter 19. Or the battle at the end of the uh, millennium, which was in chapter 20. Who wants to stick their neck out? Why is that? Okay. And that's good. That's right. In the millennium, they will be dwelling safely in the land. That's good. Any other clues there that might say it's the second one? There's a big one. Nobody, nobody said. Gog and Magog. That's right. Did you, did you catch that? Okay. Well, I'm going to grind your gears and say it's probably not. Uh, and I'm not going to be the ultimate authority on this. <coughs> Bill... Uh, if you look at his commentary, he believes it's the first, and he's not alone in that. Probably most conservative scholars think this is talking about part of the campaign of Armageddon. And we'll look at the passage and you'll see why. But if you go away thinking, no, no, this is the one at the end of millennium, that's fine. Okay, we can still have fellowship together. <laughs> Just uh, to comment on the verses we looked at, first of all, uh, it's interesting, you read commentators who wrote during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it's amazing the prominent role that Russia plays in prophecy in their mind. Isn't it interesting? Because they played a prominent role in our minds during that time. And because of that, I believe, you see commentaries that were written during that time, they say, oh, it's obvious, Gog and Magog are Russia. That's the, that's the enemy that comes in from the north. And they go further and say, now look at these, Rosh. What does that remind you of? Russia. Meshach, well, twist a little bit and you got Moscow. Tubal, well, now you really got to stretch it because uh, there's a town, it's not, it's not that big, and Moscow is called Tubalt. Okay, so, now, and I'm not, I'm not really uh, criticizing, that may be the case, but the problem is, uh, using names like that to identify geographical locations in the Bible is very difficult. In fact, if you look around in a country, you'll find a set of cities in probably every country in the world that you could, you know, tie sound-wise to these words. Now, you do have the clue later that he says it comes from the far north, not just the north. So it may well be Russia. But if you go north from Israel, you start with Lebanon, you hit Syria, Turkey, and Russia. It could be any of those, or it could be one of the countries from the uh, revived Roman Empire, which is relatively north. The bottom line is we really don't know. Okay, but he comes from the north. All right, we know that much. <clears throat> now, let's look at this and see what kind of clues we can get to say, now where does this fit in Revelation? Uh, by the way, okay, and now a comment. Um, remember also that at the beginning of the tribulation, uh, there's a covenant made with the Antichrist. 
with the nation of Israel. So in a sense, they're dwelling safely in the land then as well. Or it, it seems that way, because they're able to proceed with, apparently, uh, the temple ceremonies. But uh, you, you decide. Okay, now verse 9, you will ascend coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. It's a great, great army. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. To take plunder and to take booty, to stretch out your hand against the waste places that are again inhabited and against the people gathered from the nations who have acquired livestock and goods, who dwell in the midst of the land. Sheba, Dadan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all their young lions will say to you, by the way, again, you have to decide in those verses we just read, is this talking about Israel dwelling safely during the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus, or is this uh, Israel restored, as we see them right now, from the nations and dwelling safely in the land after the treaty with the Antichrist? Uh, they will have, they, they ask this question, have you come to take plunder, verse 13? Have you gathered your army to take booty, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to take great plunder? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to God, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel dwell safely, will you not know it? Then you will come from your place out of the far north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. By the way, now when you read Old Testament prophecies about battles that are taking place in times, you see things like horses, bows and arrows. Um, we saw shields and bucklers over in verse 4. Don't let that disturb you. You'd like to read in here tanks, assault rifles, and laser-guided bombs. But unfortunately, the words didn't exist in Hebrew when God wrote it. And he wasn't out to be, uh, how shall I say it, prophetic militarily, i.e. weapon-wise, okay? So it shouldn't, shouldn't disturb us. Um, it could be literally that they have bows and arrows and spears. I think God is just saying that they're coming with their weapons. And he used the words that people knew meant weapons, okay? Nothing more than that. Okay, um, now you can go so far, some people have said, well, you know, the spears, well, they're missing, you know. And the horses, well, they're tanks, because there's the cavalry, you know. Okay. Um, verse 16, you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days, there's that phrase again, that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O God, before their eyes. This is a very important verse. You may not even caught it, but God reveals a purpose for why he does things, not just this particular battle, but in general. It's one of the greatest purposes of God, and that is to reveal himself. We're going to see it again later. Thus says the Lord God, Are you he of whom I have spoken in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied for years in those days that I would bring you against them? Okay, we're in a little more detail here now. And it will come to pass at the same time when God comes against the land of Israel, says the Lord God, that my fury will show in my face. For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath I have spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, so that the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all creeping things that creep on the earth, and all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains shall be thrown down, the steep places shall fall, and every wall shall fall to the ground. Now if you remember, 
The sixth vial was the call to battle. Remember the kings uh, come from the east and Armageddon and so on. The seventh vial was the great earthquake right after that. So some commentators read this and they say, there it is. You see, there's the connection. The call to battle, and then at the end of it, the seventh vial, or the seventh bowl, which is the great earthquake. And it's a worldwide earthquake because it says in verse 20, all men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. Okay? I will call for a sword, verse 21, against God throughout all my mountains, says the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will bring him to judgment with pestilence and bloodshed. I will rain down on him, on his troops, and on the many peoples who are with him, flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, verse 22 gives us some more insight into the details. It says that God not only is going to bring the earthquake, but locally at the battlefield, he is going to send four things out of heaven on the attacking armies. Flooding rain, great hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Now, if you were to be there, you would say, this is a miracle, wouldn't you? All of these things, fire coming down out of heaven, yes? Now, the skeptics would read this and say, oh, come on. Fire out of heaven, you've got to be kidding. No, it's going to be real. And that's very important, you see, because it's going to be undeniably the hand of God. Do you understand? That's why it's so important that it be literally this picture. We, we even as believers, sometimes read this and say, boy, I wish it was something we could explain naturally, you know, so the skeptic would believe it. No, don't feel that way. If you'd explain it naturally, then the unbeliever's going to say, that's just an ordinary occurrence, you know. It's not the hand of God. But I'll tell you, when flooding rain and fire and brimstone and hailstones come out of the heavens all at once, uh, destroying an attacking army, that's clearly the hand of God. You understand? And that's why God is going to do it that way. So that there will be no denying that he did it. In fact, he says that. Thus I will magnify myself and sanctify myself, and I will be known, you understand, in the eyes of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. And we need to stand back and recognize what God is about. We get caught up in the events of the end times in Revelation, and we sometimes maybe get the idea that events are sort of randomly going along and God is doing his best, you know, to kind of keep things under control and, and ultimately maybe achieve his purposes and nothing could be further from the truth. God's greatest goal, in fact, your reason for being is linked with this, we're talking about big questions now, is to reveal himself to his creation. We need to remember that. First there was just God and nothing else. Then God created something else. And in that something else were beings who had knowledge and were spirit beings, angels, and us. And the only purpose for creating them was not so that they could go out and have a good time. It was to know Him. Okay? And if you're a believer here this morning, you're going, oh, amen in your heart. If not with your mouth. And so... It's not surprising then that in the end times, that's the greatest purpose God is achieving. 
He is revealing Himself in the midst of all the things that are going on. Now, just a little reminder uh, to the, uh, the people in the Exodus class in the morning. Watch for that phrase. It's all over the book of Exodus as you're going through the plagues now. You say, why did God prolong those plagues so long? Why were there ten? Why didn't he just do one? He says this at least a half a dozen times throughout that phrase. He's revealing himself. And it's interesting. He says, not only that I, that I shall be known to the nation of Israel, but also that the Egyptians might know that I am the Lord. He says that at least a half a dozen times in that section. Very important. And another, this is an excursus on an excursus, but it's very interesting. In Egyptian history, now, they believe that um, the pharaoh mentioned in Exodus that you're studying is one of the Ramesses. I think Ramesses third. I haven't read about it for a while. One of the lesser-known pharaohs of Egypt, though, is a very interesting fellow. His name was Akhenaten. He came after the time with Moses in the Israelites. And the interesting thing about Akhenaten was he did a very strange thing. You know what he did? He got rid of all the, uh, the, the plethora of idols in Egypt and reduced worship to one god. Isn't that interesting? You don't read about it much. Now, he didn't completely break with idolatry because his one god was the sun god, Aten, which is why he named himself Akhenaten. The sun god is in his name. But nevertheless... I believe that that was one of the effects of God revealing himself to the nation of Egypt. And for it to trickle up that high to Pharaoh himself, one wonders how many just common, ordinary Egyptians on the street, when they saw the hand of God in Israel, if they didn't, like um, dear Rahab up in Jericho, seeing the hand of God say, He is God, He is the Lord, and come to know Him, will know in heaven. Okay, enough of the excursus. So, uh, we have this battle here in, in Ezekiel 38. It's clearly talking about the end times. And uh, let me commend it to your study. And uh, you decide which you think it applies to. All right, we're going to do them in order. And I'm only going to look at three uh, passages in the Old Testament. And the next one is just a right-hand turn to Daniel. <coughs> the end of Daniel has a lot of very detailed prophecy about kings, and uh, military action. And um, you have to study it very carefully. A lot of it has already been fulfilled. But there's one uh, individual here that we're going to read about that if we look at the context, it has not happened yet. There may have been a short-term, uh, a first fulfillment, as there often is in prophecy, where some of these things were fulfilled in a man, but there are some things that clearly were not fulfilled. We'll start with verse 40 of uh, chapter 10 of Daniel. Now we have the king of the south. We had a movement from the north before. I'm sorry, chapter 11, yes. Sorry. Daniel 11... Verse 40, all with me now? At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Well, there's a pronoun. We, we, we wonder who that is. But let's read on and we'll find out. And the king of the north shall come against him. 
like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass them through. Pass through. Who's he? Is it the king of the south, king of the north, or is it the him? Well, we know this happens in the end times, because it says in the time of the end. And um, let's look back and find out who this king is. Look at verse 36. This king has actually been mentioned previously. He picks up the uh, narration this way. Then the king shall do according to his own will. For this reason, this king is often called the willful king. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak, above er shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. Does that remind you of anyone? Yes, Antichrist. It's a very good description of Antichrist. Uh, parallel it with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It appears to be the Antichrist. So, in verse 40 now, it says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. It appears that there's going to be rebellion or a revolution in the end times against the Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him. So here's a double whammy, north and south, coming against him. But it appears that the Antichrist shall be triumphant because it, it seems that he's the one who enters the countries, overwhelms them, and passes through. Verse 41, he shall also enter the glorious land, Israel. This may be the breaking of the treaty at the middle of the three and a half years. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. This is significant. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Now, if you remember, this area is significant in the end times for a particular reason. First of all, do you know where this area generally is? Look at your uh, atlas if you don't know. It's actually... Uh, what's that? Yeah, east and south of the Dead Sea. That's right. And it's a very desolate area. The word that is often used to describe it in the Bible is the wilderness. We think of wilderness as a place with a lot of bushes because we're from the U.S. There the wilderness is pretty much devoid of vegetation. It's just dry, rock, cliffs, you know, caves on the side of the cliffs, desert with a few scrub here and there. Now, the significant thing I believe here is that if you remember, uh, we read in Revelation chapter 12 that the dragon, Satan, when he was cast out of heaven, went after Israel with a vengeance. You remember that? And uh, it says that she fled to a place that was prepared by God for 1260 days. And it was the wilderness. During the last three and a half years, believing Israel apparently will be provided for, taken care of, given nourishment, it says in Revelation, in that area. This will be the sanctuary of believing Jews during the Great Tribulation. And so it's interesting that when the Antichrist sweeps through with his military forces, that area is somehow spared. And I believe it's because God has it set aside for that purpose. He shall uh, stretch out his hands against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But, this is interesting and there's a lot of speculation on what this is. News from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate 
many. The east may be that passage in Revelation 16 where the Euphrates River dried up, remember? And uh, the nation came from the east in the speculation anywhere from Iraq to China. Who knows? And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountains. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. Okay. That's uh, phase number two, if you will, of the Armageddon campaign. I'm not going to put a chronology on them. It's not clear in what order. But you see, there's more detail in the Old Testament prophecies, isn't there, about the battle. And you can see there's more than just a fight out in the plains of Jezreel. Okay, last passage is in Zechariah. <coughs> These aren't the only ones, but uh, they're some of the major ones. Okay, Matt's going to get up and get the phone, but no, you pay attention to the Word of God here. Zechariah 12, the burden of the Word of the Lord. You with me here? Zechariah, right toward the end of the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces. Though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, it's a key phrase, it's throughout uh, Zechariah 12 and 13. And it's also in the Old Testament prophets. Joel uses it a lot. He's talking about the last days. Says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion. And its rider with madness, I will open my eyes on the house of Judah. And will strike every horse of the people's with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place. Jerusalem. Okay, well it goes on. Um, verse... Uh, 10, you should recognize, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Now, we talked about that before. God quotes this in applying it first to the crucifixion, but he stops with the word pierced because the mourning will not come until the spiritual restoration of the nation of Israel, which will happen during the tribulation. So, this is really fulfilled then. Verse 11, In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem. There's that phrase again, in that day, tying it with the previous events. This is clearly again during the tribulation. Uh, verse 13, we're not gonna, uh, chapter 13, we're not going to read it, but you see in that day occurs verse 1, 2, and 4. And it's talking about again the tribulation. Finally, chapter 14 um, behold, the day of the Lord is coming, verse 1. Talking about the battle again. We'll jump down to verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, there's that phrase again, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. I don't think that's happened yet, has it? From east to west, making a very large valley, Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. I'll tell you, if you want to spiritualize that passage away, you're going to have to do away with an awful lot of literal 
description of God splitting the earth into the Lord Jesus when he comes back. So that's another event accompanying the campaign of Armageddon. Okay, this is a whirlwind tour. Uh, if you want to know more, just start reading through the prophets. And it's fun. Look at them and say, now, has this been fulfilled yet? Or is this talking about a battle at the end times? Let's go back to Revelation now. The campaign apparently ends with the battle at Armageddon. That, that appears to be the case. That's the, like the last battle of these various campaigns, of these various battles. And there the Lord himself uh, intervenes as we saw. Revelation 20. Now the second battle, here in chapter 20, unless Ezekiel 38 and 39 are talking about this, we don't have a lot of detail except what we have here in Revelation 20. One significant thing I want to point out. Let's read it again. Uh, chapter 20, verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, this, is, this takes place, this particular battle, at the end of the millennium, right? You with me? When the thousand years were finished, it begins. There's a significant word that's missing here that is in all the other prophecies about the end time battles. You know what it is? It's the word king. Why is that significant? Because in the tribulation, there are still rulers of countries throughout the earth. Independent rulers. And so they're described. King of the south, king of the north, king of the east. Right? The ten kings we see about in other passages. The eight kings. We don't see that here. It says he deceives the nations. Very interesting. Which is another reason why the commentators believe that Ezekiel 38-39 don't apply to this. Because the king is stressed again and again. The king of Rosh, whoever that is. You see, because in the millennium, there's one king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there, are, there will be subordinate rulers. For example, in verse 6, it says, during the millennium, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So there will be some sort of co-regency. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the absolute king of kings and lord of lords. And whatever this reigning is, is not like uh, an absolute separate monarch, the way they're described in the other passages. Okay, well, this, this second battle, we, we came back to this, we asked it earlier, how in the world can a battle like this happen at the end of the millennium under such perfect conditions, you ask, don't you? <laughs> Where do these people come from? Well, you remember that going into the millennium, the church had been raptured previously. We, we, when I say we, I'm talking about those who know the Lord Jesus Christ have received our glorified bodies and we've been to the judgment seat of Christ, we've attended the marriage supper of the Lamb and we return with Him in our glorified bodies. And as Jesus Himself said, that we're neither married nor we're given in marriage. We're like the angels at that point. In other words, we don't get married and have kids anymore. Okay? But there will be people on the earth, those who came from the tribulation, who survived it, and will be ushered into it and they will have children. And you can imagine there's going to be 
a lot of kids born and grow up during a thousand years. And just as today, each of those children, as they grow up, they will have to choose for themselves whether they will follow Christ or not. And obviously, many of them, though they have to give outward obedience because the Lord Jesus will be ruling himself physically here on the earth, inside, it's like they're saying, I will not have this man to rule over me. And it will be revealed in the end when, the, when God releases Satan from the bottomless pit and he goes forth to deceive the nations. And it's like there's a rebellion just waiting to happen. All they needed was Satan with his deception. Somehow he's going to convince them, you know, the best thing for you to do is go ahead over to Jerusalem and attack it. Even though to us it sounds harebrained, Satan is able to deceive them. And that's where these people come from. Okay, that's one of the big questions, too. The other question is, why? Why does God permit something like this? It says about the Lord Jesus ruling during the millennium that he rules with what? A rod of iron. Then why does he permit this rebellion to take place? Well, first of all, I I don't think we can put a single purpose. Uh, Ephesians talks about the manifold wisdom of God. I like that word. Until I came to the Bible, the only thing I knew about manifolds was when I used to make little model cars at home. You know, when you had those chrome tailpipes coming out? Remember that, guys? You know, that was the manifold, you know? <clears throat> it just means many-sided, uh, variegated. When God does something, he's not like us. When I do something, I generally have one thing in mind. I'm a pretty simple guy. God's not like that. He accomplishes thousands of things when he does something. His purposes, his wisdom are manifold. Okay? Isn't that great? God's like that. One of the things he's accomplishing here is he's revealing the true nature of sin. In the end times, you see, we haven't seen the world become like it's going to become when he removes the restrainer. It makes sense that God is going to let the whole universe see what sin is really like. In all its, if you pardon the expression, glory. He's going to let it ripen, if you will. He's going to do that in the tribulation, where, imagine this, a planet created by God, people created by God, are going to go to the extent of hating God and worshiping the devil. Think of that. That's how bad sin is, how far sin, when unrestrained, will go. That we, when I say that, I mean people, will go to the extent of rejecting their loving Creator and worshiping the very one who hates God, rather than worship God. And so God's going to allow it to come to full foment, if you will, ripen. And so in the tribulation as well. Uh, Also, God's in the business of exposing secrets. You know, all this time, these these people, and remember the, the longevity during the millennium, people will live for hundreds of years. Remember that? A person at 100, it said in the Old Testament, will be considered a child. Great longevity. So all during that time, these people who have rebelled now, all that time they've been chafing at the bit, you know? I, I, I don't want this guy to rule over me. I want to run my own life. And so God exposes that. He brings that to, to view. But the greatest purpose, I believe, is that simply again, God is revealing himself. And you say, how is he revealing himself? Well, Let's get back to one of the biggest questions you can ask. Why does God permit evil in the universe? You ever heard that one? Huh? 
If God is so good, if God is so loving, why is there so much evil? And, of course, if you really don't understand God, you're permitted to ask that question. But if you've known God for any length of time, you understand why. God created us. He created the angels. Why? For one purpose, to know Him. So that He could reveal Himself. Now, God has attributes. We have to be careful. You can't cut up God into pieces and say He's this, He's this, He's that. He's one God. Nevertheless, there are things about Him that the Bible uses like righteousness, mercy, truth, love, patience, and so on, right? Those are attributes. And to reveal those things, He has acted in history in certain ways so that we can see those attributes. Now think about it. What uh, most unbelievers, when they ask that question, what they're saying is, you know, why didn't God create a universe with just good in it? You know, everybody does what he wants, everybody's happy, everybody goes to heaven. What's wrong with that picture? You're saying, I don't see anything wrong with that. <laughs> There's a lot wrong with it. Because you've only seen half of God. Have you seen his wrath? Have you? Could you see his wrath? Well, I don't know. I mean, how do you see the wrath of God? He has to act. There's nothing to be wrathful about. Have you seen his mercy? Yes, no. No. There's no one to be merciful to. And the mercy of God is great. Have you seen his grace? Well, in some extent, yeah. But compare the grace you might see there to taking people like you and me who hate God, richly deserve hell, and will end up closer to him than the angels forever and ever. Now that's grace. Huh? Isn't that great? And we could go on. His justice. There is so much of God that we could not have seen had he not permitted evil in the universe. And so, if somebody asks you that question, try to explain it to them. Boy, that's it. Now they may not agree with it or understand it, but that's the truth. That's why. And we're going to finish by looking. I wish... We'd have been able to take a tour through Romans, but we just don't have the time. Romans is a great book for studying this subject of God revealing himself. Chapter uh, 1 says he reveals his wrath. Uh, Verses uh, 19 and 23 talks about his power and his Godhead, his glory. In chapter 2, his goodness, his forbearance, his patience, and his kindness. Chapter uh, 3, his righteousness is revealed in the gospel. Chapter 5... Great verse everybody's memorized. God demonstrates his love toward us. See, he shows his love. He had love, but he wanted it, us to see it. And so, you wanted, how did he show it? God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that great? You can see his love. There, demonstrated. Well, the verse we're going to look at is in chapter 9. Talking about God revealing himself again. It talks about his wrath. By the way, just a, a quick excursus, uh, you guys, in Exodus here. Verse 17. talks about Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Remember I said that earlier. There's a purpose of God in all the events of the Exodus. Okay, verse 22 of chapter 9 of Romans. Paul's asking a question here about 
with the purposes of God in our thinking about it. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Look at all the attributes God is displaying there. By the way, um, people read this and uh, some extremists come away and they say, see, look at that. God destined people for hell. What does it say right there? Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endure with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And yet, you need to read on. What did it say? There's a big difference in the way he states verse 23 and verse 22. There's a little word. Little words make a big difference in the Bible. What's the word that's in verse 23 that's not in 22? Yes, that's right. He. Are you following me? Verse 23, the vessels prepared for glory. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those that are going to heaven, it says that he had prepared beforehand. Yeah. But in verse 22, the he is missing. They're just, they're just prepared he didn't do it. They did it. Do you understand? He didn't have to have a hand in preparing people for hell. They did it themselves. Here's, here's a terrible illustration, but it helps get it across. Suppose somebody came to me and said, hey, my car is ready for the uh, auto show. What, what kind of picture you get in your mind? Probably a pretty spruced up car, right? And uh, the guy who told you that, assuming it's a guy... You, you could imagine he probably did a lot of work, right? Maybe put on one of those chrome manifolds, huh? You know? But he, put a, he had to put a lot of effort into getting this thing ready for the auto show. Now imagine another guy comes to you and he says, you know, my car is ready for the junkyard. Now what kind of a picture do you get in your mind? You get a picture of him, you know, doing a lot of work to get it ready for the junkyard? <laughs> Going out into his garage, you know, with a sledgehammer and pounding it, you know? Maybe knocking out the windows. Is that the picture? What does he mean by that? He means just in and of itself, you know, it just finally died one too many times. And I'm going to get rid of it. Now, we use the same word. My car is ready for the auto show. My car is ready or prepared for the junkyard. But they're two entirely different senses, you see. And that's the picture here. Here's a shocker for you, brothers and sisters. You know, we have a, a, quite a bit in common with people who will be in hell forever. You know what it is? Both of us deserve to be there. I deserve to be in hell. It's only through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that I won't be. He's the difference. Isn't that great? And let me tell you that, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, that's the difference with you. Come to Christ. Let Him be your all in all. And you won't stop deserving hell. But God will make you fit for heaven. Not because you deserve it, but because of His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the wonderful assurance that we have that we can rest solidly on your word, as we sang this, this morning, the promises of God, and know for certain that you're going to fulfill what you said, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back soon, and that he is coming first to take us who know him to be with him.
in that place that He has prepared and how we long for that day. Lord, we pray for anyone here who is not ready. We ask they may not be left behind. But today, they might realize practically in their lives the very purpose of their being and that is to know You. This is eternal life that they may know Thee, the eternal God in Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent that they might come to Christ today. For we ask it in His name. Amen.